Researchers like those at the University of Calgary estimate that each year, 150 billion new stars are born in our universe. Closer to home, NASA calculates that the Milky Way galaxy is producing about half a dozen new stars each year. Dr. Ronald, oh sorry, Roland Deal, a physicist that studies these sorts of things, he says this, our galaxy isn't the biggest producer of stars in the universe, but there's still plenty of activity. In our text tonight, we might say a star is born. He's not a major character in the New Testament, but he's one that we remember if you're well-schooled in the New Testament. His name is Apollos. He's the silver-tongued preacher who would ultimately do a great amount of work for the Lord and even find his name listed among church leaders like Paul and Peter. He shined brightly for the Lord in Asia Minor and in Greece, and I'm sure in many other places that aren't recorded for us. But what we find in this text is that he was just one individual being used by God, one star in a growing constellation of Christians who were shining the light of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire in all sorts of ways. Uh, so much of Acts, you know, is dedicated to the movements of Paul and what God accomplished through him. And tonight he's on the move again quite a bit. He's going to cover a lot of ground. In fact, this is one of those sections where Luke uh, spends a very small amount of words covering a great distance in a lot of different places. Paul's second missionary journey, which we've been studying for quite a few weeks, ends in verse 22, but Luke moves on to the third journey already in verse 23, just keeps moving, moving, moving. But these verses are not just about Paul. Throughout the story, we see others in each place. And as we read, there's a theme of brotherhood and connection. We see the Christian family cooperating and expanding. But also we see people growing in their faith and in their understanding and in their usefulness in the Lord's hands. You know, the second half of Acts is largely about Paul, but it's not only about Paul because the church isn't a basketball team, right? Where you have one or two superstars and then a few other guys on the court and then you have a support staff and then that's sort of the end of the list in a sense, right? A relatively small group. No, the church isn't like that. The church is a family. And every single one of us who is a Christian here tonight, whether we've just been born into the faith a few days ago or whether you've been in the faith in the family of God for 80 years or more, anything in between, each of us is part of what God is doing. Each of us is a light shining in the darkness of the world. And so we're gonna get into it starting in verse 18. When we left off, the apostle Paul had spent at least a year and a half in the Greek city of Corinth. And we read, after staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. It was unusual for Paul to be able to spend so much time in one place, at least other than Antioch, his sort of home base. Sometimes he was only in a city for a few days before having to run for his life. But his long stay with the Corinthians had come to an end. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. We're not given the, the actual catalyst or the moment where he knew he was done in that city for that time. Um, but we know that Paul's calling in, in the Christian life, God's command to him was to not really stay planted in one place, but to go here and there as a mobile preacher of grace. The timing was up to the Holy Spirit. It wasn't up to Paul. It wasn't up to the people in Corinth. It wasn't up to the larger church in Jerusalem or anything like that. It was up to the Holy Spirit. 
And we'll see in these verses that Paul really was sensitive to the will of God when it came to when he stayed somewhere and when he moved on. We're reminded of that comforting but significant phrase in Psalm 31, 15, where we read, my times are in his hands. And that's true, not just for the psalmist and not just for the apostle Paul, but for you and me as well. Other translations render that verse this way, the course of my life is in your power or my future is in your hands. That's true. And we need to believe it. And not only do we need to believe it, we need to act like it that God actually is, is, is the determiner of when we go and what we do and, and what course he would like us to take in life. Now we notice right from the start that family feel. Paul said farewell to them as brothers and sisters. And though these Christians in Corinth would later be a cause of real heart hurt for Paul, he always thought of them as family. And it wasn't just Corinth. I mean, this is how he felt about the Christians that he encountered and the churches that he planted. It wasn't just a business or a franchise that he was starting. They weren't just nameless people who were filling seats somewhere. It was a family. They were brothers and sisters. And we see that Paul's friends here, Priscilla and Aquila, came with him. We talked about this couple a bit last time, but let's focus in on this. Going with Paul, leaving Corinth, meant that they had to close up shop yet again and step out into the unknown. They had already been driven out of Rome. We learned that last time. Uh, there was a Jewish purge out of Rome. Uh, Caesar said, hey, all the Jews got to get out of here. And so they were uprooted from Rome. They found themselves at Corinth. They kind of started their life over again. They opened up this tent shop. Paul started working with them. And then they hung out in Corinth for you know a year and a half. We don't know how long Priscilla and Aquila were there, but um, it was probably not that much longer than when Paul arrived, you know, it wasn't like 10 or 12 years or anything like that, but they had been driven out of Rome and they had to start all over there in Corinth. And now they find themselves on a ship sailing again. And I doubt very much that they were able to take all their tools and all their inventory to make a soft landing for themselves in Syria, but they did it. Why? Well, they did it, of course, for the Lord and for the gospel and because they were being led by the Holy Spirit. And it's a very good thing that they did but it certainly wouldn't have made financial sense at the time. Their CPA would have said, hey, we just did this. You just got established. Now you're talking about not only moving again, but you're not even moving to a different Greek city. You're crossing an ocean. You're going into Asia Minor. They got a whole other thing going on here. You don't have any leads over there. You know, and uh, we don't see them just pausing and waiting and say, hey, I, just, I can't be uprooted again. I can't be bothered again. I can't be disturbed again. Now, we're not given the sort of uh, backdoor look into how the Holy Spirit called them, but at some point, the Holy Spirit uh, called them and said, I want you to go with Paul on this trip. And it would have cost them something, cost them probably a lot, certainly cost them a lot of uncertainty. Jesus once said this in Matthew 10, he said, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. That's a promise from our Lord. And uh, <clears throat> when sometimes we come across that, people are like, well, what does that mean? If they gave up 
their house in Corinth? Did they get 100 houses in Ephesus? What's the deal there? And we would recognize that Jesus is talking about the church and the connections that you make, the family of believers, and the way that we are able to support one another and bring our resources to bear. We see that in a very pure and concentrated way at the beginning of Acts, right? Where the church is brand new and born in Acts chapter two, and then uh, there's thousands of people and they're all pilgrims there in Jerusalem. They have nothing. They have no resources or supplies to work with and everybody comes together and suddenly it's like you had a hundred houses to work with and you had all of these resources and all of these relationships, relationships not built upon uh, economics or not relationships built on hierarchy or anything like that, but a family relationship of brother and sister. It's a great, great thing. Now, what about this vow? Oh my, oh my, do commentators get into a tizzy when we get to the shaving of the head here. First of all, there's an argument over whether Luke is speaking about Paul at all, or maybe it was Aquila who shaved his head. And then there's the argument over what kind of vow this was. Some say it was definitely a Nazarite vow. Others say it definitely wasn't a Nazarite vow. Some say it was an act of profound thankfulness to God. Others say it was a failure in Paul's life, a big mistake. One commentator we really love calls it a deliberate sin and that he believes this to be the beginning of the end for Paul, that if he wouldn't have done this, he wouldn't have been ultimately arrested in Jerusalem and you know, uh, sent before Caesar and all of that kind of stuff. So they're all over the place and everybody's mad at everybody arguing about it. We simply don't know what this vow was about. You know why? Because Luke doesn't tell us what it's about. It seems pretty clear that Luke obviously has Paul as the subject of the narrative, right? But we're given no consequential or editorial data about this act. We're just, it's just thrown out there for us. Now, listen, Paul wasn't a perfect man. He called himself the chief of sinners after all. But we also know that simultaneously, not that we, he could never make a mistake, not suggesting that, but we also know that he was at times the lone defender of the gospel of grace among the apostles, the, the lone guy where he had to withstand Peter to his face. He had to withstand Barnabas and say, you guys are blowing it when it comes to the Mosaic law and legalism and all that kind of stuff. Paul is the champion of Christian liberty from the law of Moses, right? He's the guy. And so we just don't have enough information to make a verdict about this. And so rather than argue the merits or whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, we just don't have all the information. And so for me, it was a good moment to sort of zoom back for a second and take a, a wider look and just remember that Paul had a deep and active personal relationship with the Lord. No matter what you want to say about this vow, whether you kind of fall into that, it seems dicey that he did that, or if you fall into that, you know, yeah, sometimes people do an act of devotion to the Lord. Whichever one, it's obvious that this was a personal interaction that he was having with his God, that he felt the need on some level or another that we are not, you know, given, that we're not privy to, and he, it, to, to perform this act for some reason. And it's because he had a personal relationship with his savior. And what I mean by that was, is that Paul's Christianity wasn't just all public. He had more than a theological relationship with God, more than an academic relationship with God, more than just a professional exercise of his Christianity. He was speaking to his Lord one-on-one -on -one in prayer. He was being moved to acts of devotion in his personal life that we'll never know about because they're not recorded for us. 
things that didn't have to do with his official job title in the church were going on in his heart with the Lord because he was a man that was growing all the time. And we wanna be Christians like that. So without really making a positional point about the vow itself, because I don't think we have enough information to do so, we do wanna be the kind of Christians who actually have a real individual personal interaction with the Lord. That it's not just, well, I interact with God when I get to church and I have this corporate interaction at, at Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, or I have certain interactions around the dinner table in an in a official family capacity where we read the Bible together. You know what I mean? But that as an individual, we're growing and learning and have a real personal friendship and a love relationship with our Savior King, Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. We learn in the book of Romans that there was already an established church in Sincrea, and so the trio hop over to the city of Ephesus. Paul is in a hurry, but he sets aside a morning to go and preach to some of his countrymen there in the synagogue. Hopefully, we're never too busy to do ministry when the opportunity arises. Paul isn't going to stay. He's gonna make it a point to say, hey, I'm not staying uh, but he had time to do the work of the evangelist that Saturday, right? He had the opportunity. He's got, I got a few minutes. My ship's not leaving for a day or my ship's not leaving till later. I can go and I'm going to preach the word to these people. I'm gonna do what I can to cast out the line to be a fisher of men. And so, you know, we're busy people. Our culture is a busy culture. We wanna make sure that we're not too busy to have opportunities to serve the Lord and to shine the light of the gospel. We're told he left Priscilla and Aquila there. We don't have all the conversations between them, but it reads as though Paul directed them to stay. And we remember that Paul had apostolic authority and that this faithful Christian couple were willing to submit to his leadership, even though they were personal friends, right? Hey, man, like, we're, you know, we're not just these, you know, we're not just these like weird pagan pagan Gentiles that you tell what to do in these churches. They didn't have an attitude like that. And even though he may have started out even as their employee, it seems like, when he went to Corinth, he needed a job. He was out of money. He was out of supply. And so he gets a job making tents in their tent-making workshop. And so it's very possible that, in a sense, he was working for them. He was their employee. And on top of that, some scholars think that Priscilla was a member of the noble class, a, a noble lady, right? So despite all of these potential things, Priscilla and Aquila, really remarkable couple. They're humble and flexible and meek. And because of that, they're going to be super, super, super useful in a little bit in our text. And so we just want to be a couple like this. A couple, you know, we want to be people like this who are being directed by God, who are not, you know, thinking of ourselves too highly, who are not demanding certain levels of whatever from the people around us, but just saying, hey, I'm here to show love, I'm here to support the ministry, I'm here to do what God wants me to do. And if he wants me to do it in the place I'm living, that's fine. If he wants me to do it in a new place, that's fine. If he wants me to get on a boat, we can do that too. It might cost me something, it might not cost me something, I'm for it. And so I just, this couple, great couple. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined. But he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. 
It must have been a strange sensation for Paul to be asked to stay, but not be able to stay. That's not how it usually happened, right? Usually he's asked to leave, sometimes with rocks hitting him on the way out, you know? Uh, But in his decision, we see a good snapshot of his ministry mindset. First of all, if Paul was a a minister who was numbers-oriented, he would have stayed, right? Uh, Ephesus is a big city. It's an important city. And conventional wisdom would say, hey, strike while the iron's hot. You've got, you've got some big ones on the line here. We're talking about Ephesus. We're talking about the temple of Artemis. We're talking about this major city. And they want to hear from you. They're not trying to kill you. They're, they're asking you to stay. And if we're numbers oriented about, well, I have to, you know, create a certain size of ministry or we're looking for this specific number of people, well, then conventional wisdom would say to stay. But Paul said no. He wasn't motivated by numbers of followers or those sorts of metrics that are so prevalent in church culture today. We also see that he believed God should set the course of ministry. His goal was not to hit a certain number of cities per year or plant a certain number of churches per year or anything like that. He just wanted to be in God's will. And if God's will meant he was gonna be in Thessalonica for three weeks and in Corinth for a year and a half, he was fine with that. I don't think for one second that in Paul's room, he had a map and said, here's my you know, five-year plan, and we're going we're gonna to plant this many churches, and we're going to make this, this, and this happen. What Paul said is, if God wills, I'll go, and if God wills, I'll stay. And if that's in Greece, we'll go to Greece, and if that's in Asia Minor, we'll go to Asia Minor. Uh, I know that that's the case because back a few chapters ago when he was trying to move into Asia, the Holy Spirit said, please don't move into Asia, and he said, that's fine. He had thought, why don't we go this way? Why don't we head east and kind of go up here? And the, and the Lord said to him, no, I don't like that idea. We're moving you over into Europe. We're moving you into Greece. And he said, that's fine. And the problem is if we get into a um, more business-oriented mindset in the way that we do ministry and we start pulling out charts and, and making decisions about, well, we'll reach this many people if we do this, and this is our strategy, one, two, three, four, Uh, the Lord's strategy doesn't make a lot of sense to human minds a lot of times. And so we just want to be in God's will. And third, we see that Paul trusted God to do what was right and best in each of these places. I mean, he's a preacher of the gospel. He's talking to these Jews who are outside of the kingdom of God. So often they immediately reject what he's saying, but these guys say, we would like to hear more. We want to hear this gospel that you're telling us. And man, Paul had to say, ooh, I have to go. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll come back someday. Maybe. Right? I mean, that would have been really hard for Paul. We keep bringing this up because it's pretty profound that he said it. He said, you know, I, I wish that I could be sent to hell in place of my Jewish countrymen. And he said, if I could make that swap, I'd do it if, if, the, if the Jews would be saved. Right? And he kept going to these synagogues in city after city, even though they're beating him and stoning him and reviling him and blaspheming and doing all these stuff. And finally, he gets to a synagogue and they're like, we love, we love what you're saying. Why don't you tell us more? And he's like, I, I gotta go. I gotta go. I'm really sorry. And so we see that he trusted God, right? He trusted God to do what was right, to do what was best in each of these places. He knew that God had a heart for Ephesus. Of course, Paul had a heart for Ephesus too, but not as much as God did. God has a greater heart for Hanford and for Kings County and for California and for the world than we do, right? 
Think of the greatest missionary that you've ever heard of, you know, the most impassioned follower of Christ that you can think of. God has a greater heart for the lost than all of those people put together. That doesn't mean we should just, okay, well, God will take care of it. I mean, we should still be stirred up and ask the Lord to put burdens on our hearts for particular people and particular things, but we can trust the Lord and that and we can trust him to send us out into corners and avenues of his vineyard that he wants to send us out, right? When Jesus talked about send out laborers into the harvest, he talked about how there's a master, a Lord of the harvest, right? There's a guy in charge. You and I are not the foreman in that situation. We're the people that are just sent out to do what we're told to do. And in some cases, in this case, Paul showed up to you know, one section of the vineyard and said, hey, I could work here. And the master of the vineyard said, I want you to move over there right now. And he said, okay. Verse 22, on landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Luke covers a lot of ground here. Surely each of these stops would have included some great and wonderful stories of God's power but that's not the Holy Spirit's focus in this passage. Instead, we are seeing in place after place that either a work is, is getting started or more often they are already established. There are already established Christians living out their faith in each of these places, right? We started in Corinth. There were many believers there thanks to the work of Paul and the other believers. Their lives have been dramatically transformed. You can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 what kind of people they were before the gospel came to Corinth. And Paul said, let me list some things that are going on in your city. And there, it's a, not a great list, not what you want on your resume. And Paul said, and such were some of you, but now you've been transformed, right? And then he goes over to Sincrea, and there's a church that had already been started there. On to Ephesus, where something brand new was just beginning, some uh, you know, real excitement about the, the preaching of the gospel. And so what did Paul do? He had to leave, but he left some Christian operatives there to get things up and running. He says, okay, I'm leaving because the Holy Spirit wants me to leave, but the Holy Spirit has given me the okay to leave Priscilla and Aquila here. You guys stay and get things going, preach the gospel, set up the ministry and, and lead people to Christ. And now we're over to Caesarea where people like Philip the Evangelist lived and Cornelius with his household, preachers and saints ministering to the soldiers of Rome and the people on the coast. Then to Jerusalem where there were other apostles and many others who walked with Jesus. Many of the priests and the Pharisees were giving their lives to Christ in these early years of the church, right? And then to Antioch, Paul's home church, a church full of faith and prayer and mission, a blend of Jews and Gentiles all together in the family of God. So everywhere you're going, you see these like little constellations of Christians and they have all of these connections together and these people know these people and these people traveled here and then we went there and there's this growth and this shining and this connection and this wonderful family feel there among the church. In the darkness of the world, everywhere we turn in this passage, we see constellations of believers lighting up, right? New stars being born in places like Ephesus, others shining as brightly as ever in places like Antioch. Not because there was just one man, one superstar doing something, but because countless people were all functioning as the body of Christ wherever they found themselves. Paul had been out in the wider world, but his friends at Antioch had kept the light on for him. And that's an important thing. 
The same was happening in each place that he went and would go back to, starting in verse 23 on his third missionary journey. Look at that verse. After spending some time there, he set out traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. There's no record of Paul going to some place where he had been before, where he had planted a church and it being a ghost town. Do you remember, I don't know why, this like stuck with me. It's one of the like three things that stuck with me from my schooling. But Roanoke, remember the colony at Roanoke? What happened to those people? They planted a colony. Everything was fine. When they came, when whoever a ship came back, it's all gone. Everybody's gone. No trace. All the people are gone. And they still don't know. They're just gone. No remains, no anything. There's just like a ghost town. I don't know why, that just, that scared me in school. And I thought, why are we learning about this, right? But there was no sort of Christian church Roanoke. There was no ghost town where it's like, oh yeah, there used to be Christians here, but they're all gone. No, everywhere he went, there were Christians there, still living, kept, they kept the light on, right? And they were ready to be built up and strengthened by Paul when he came. And this was a welcome and necessary work. We think of Paul the evangelist, which is a great thing, or Paul the epistle writer, also a great thing. But he also would go to these churches that he was connected to, and he would just work with the Christians there and build them up and strengthen them. As Matthew Poole wrote, though the seed be duly sown, yet it must be seasonably watered. That's not only true for Galatians and Phrygians, but for Hamfordites and Lamorons as well. I'm sorry, I had to. I had to. What is, the, what is the proper Lemur term? Does anybody, Lemurian? Lemurian, Lemurites? That doesn't sound right. That sounds like, that sounds like a quartz you find in like Crystal, Crystal Cavern, right? Lemurite, I found it. Anyway. <laughs> the seed planted in our hearts and in our location here needs to be seasonably watered, watered all the time. Once we've been transformed by the power of God and the power of the gospel, we then go on being strengthened and built up, able to bear more, endure more, accomplish more in the power of God. Paul was a great evangelist, but he also made it his business to reinforce the faith of Christians. And that is a necessary part of the Christian life. And we see that actual uh, example playing out in the real world in the remaining verses. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native, of Ale- a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who is competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. So, Here we have this remarkable man. He's from Egypt. He was Jewish by nationality, but had become a believer in Jesus, though he had apparently not heard of Jesus' death and resurrection, not to mention Pentecost. I don't know what was going on in Alexandria. We're in AD 50 already here, but they were closed off for whatever reason. But here he's described as eloquent, competent, fervent, accurate. That's a pretty good stat sheet. But One resource said it like this. He had a lot to say and he said it well. But despite his many gifts, he was incomplete. But you know what? That's okay. Because God had positioned others right where they needed to be in order to build him up and complete what was lacking in his knowledge. 
Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So we're told in verse 25 that he had been speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus. And now in verse 26, it was explained to him more accurately. And I love that because it shows that we don't have to wait to preach the gospel until we have a PhD in theology or until you have an entire gospel memorized or until you've read three systematic theology books or anything like that. If you are a Christian, you know enough about God and Jesus Christ to become a Christian, right? Obviously. And you don't need to wait to tell people about Jesus. But at the same time, all of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how smart we are or how studied we are, all of us have room to grow in our accuracy and our understanding and our knowledge of the scriptures. There's never a point where we're gonna be able to say, I've read the Bible through 10 times and now I'm done. I don't have to do that anymore. There may be other studies or other you know, areas of knowledge that are not perishable that you say, yeah, I know how to do this. I can ride a bike. I don't have to keep going over and over again, this training. But that's not the case when it comes to spirituality and the understanding of God's word. And so we all have room to grow. Listen, in that synagogue that day, Apollos was probably the smartest guy in the room, but it was two refugee laborers who would fill him in on what he was missing. And so while we all have a green light to go and preach the gospel, we've got to be sure that we stay meek enough and humble enough to recognize that we do not know everything. None of us in here know everything there is to know about Jesus or the gospel or the, or the word of God. We just don't. We need to continue to be instructed in the word of God and by his Holy Spirit. We want to become more accurate all the time. Like one of those flashlights that you can focus zoom. Do you have any of those at home? You bring it back and has the wide and you bring it in and it's you know, more, more directional. Listen, if you're in a pitch black room, I'm, I'd be glad to have a flashlight of any kind, right? But it's even better to have one that is bright and accurate and able to be focused into a highly directional beam. And so that's what we're talking about. Now, before we move on, I'd like to commend the bravery that we're seeing here. There's a lot of Christian courage in this verse. You've got Apollos standing up in boldness to preach all that he knew. He obviously didn't have every answer about Jesus. I mean, he's preaching about Jesus and they say, well, where is Jesus? He would have to say, I don't know. I don't know, but he's the Messiah. That would have been a humbling thing to have to say, right? And they would, have, he would have, they would have to talk about like, well, what's next? And he would have said, well, I know we need to repent and turn to God, and I know that Jesus is the Messiah. But he was still bold and brave to preach what he knew. He wasn't gonna shy away. We also see great courage and bravery from Priscilla and Aquila. They were in that synagogue too, right? They're there as Christian ambassadors in this synagogue. And you know what? They knew the kind of things that could happen to Christians in a situation like this. They're not dumb. They knew firsthand from Paul. Their example reminds us that the Christian life is one of grace and kindness and tact and peace, but also courage. You are commanded by God to get into the fight, to respond to the spiritual crisis this world is in. We can't just all stay home all the time and hope there's a Paul out there somewhere. Hopefully a Paul comes through town and tells people that Jesus loves them and can save them from their sin. You're that person. You're Priscilla and Aquila. Or maybe you're Apollos. You're one of those lights in that dark place. 
When there's a whole group of people right in front of us who are in desperate need of the gospel, we can't just wait and hope that, I hope an itinerant missionary comes through at some point. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sister wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no hint of jealousy or turf war or anything like that in any of this. They're all family together, all part of the same work, brothers and sisters. Doesn't matter which side of the ocean you're on. All working together, building each other up, cooperating, communicating. And we see that Apollos did a couple of things. First, he didn't just breeze in and out on his own whims. He connected himself with the local church and he's working with them here and working with his desire. And he's saying, hey, I wanna go over to Achaia. What do you guys think about that? He's not just a lone gun doing whatever he wants. We also see that he used the gifts he had. Now on the human level, Apollos had a lot of gifts, eloquence and intelligence and charisma. Sometimes we slip into a mistaken mindset that since God loves to use the foolish things of this world, that must mean he never uses smart people or well-spoken people. That's not true. He'll use anyone who is submitted to him. And Apollos put his skills and gifts into the hand of the Lord and allowed them to be used for ministry. When Jesus was looking for ingredients that day, one boy came to him and said, listen, here's what I've got. I've got five loaves and two fish. And on different days, someone came up and said, well, I have seven loaves and a few fish, right? Apollos used his oratory. Lydia used her home. Priscilla and Aquila used their business. Dorcas used her sewing kit. David used his harp and his sling. What gifts and abilities do you have? God can use them. He wants to use them. And he does use them. It's not just hypothetical. Ivor Powell writes this, if Priscilla and Aquila had not been present, the church may have lost one of its greatest evangelists. Priscilla and Aquila were used just by attending a service at the synagogue. And then God gave them this great opportunity and the course of the church and the course of human history were changed as a result. But there they were living a life of grace and courage, a life that cared about the proper understanding of the scriptures, one that didn't divide them from other people, but which welcomed them and reached out to them. And as we see Paul moving north and west, we see Apollos and others moving out in other directions. We're told Apollos became a great help to Christians in Achaia who needed to be built up and strengthened just like he had needed to be built up and strengthened. And more and more lights were born in place after place, connected in the family of God by the love of Jesus Christ. When we look up in the sky, certain stars seem larger or shine brighter. Some are much larger than others, of course. Some are just closer to us from where we're standing. The truth is, no matter the size, all of the stars declare the glory of God, right? And though many pass off the scene as each year goes by, year after year, others are born and take their place in the night sky. And the church, in a sense, is like that. What started 2,000 years ago continues today. From the human vantage point, our lives may end up seeming either like a luminous supergiant or maybe more like a little yellow dwarf star. But you know what? Even the smallest of lives can be an amazing part of God's work. Whatever the size of your ministry, whatever the size of our orbit, no matter how much gravity we might have in our life, we can keep the light on and continue growing in brightness and heat and constancy for our Lord and be a part of the spiritual birth of others who are currently trapped in darkness, but that the Lord wants to bring into his marvelous light. Amen?